Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 7 to 11. James chapter 5, 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Imagine that you were asked and agreed to be a part of a psychological study, and you show up to, uh, to this study, and there's a room that they usher you into to wait. And on the table in the room, it's like a conference table, on the table you're sitting there and there's two bowls. There's a bowl of fresh baked cookies, the smell is filling the room, and then there's a bowl of radishes. And you're, and you're in one of two groups, depending on how lucky you were that day, and you were either told when you went in to enjoy all of the cookies that you want while you wait for the next part of the study, or you were told to go in and please do not eat any of the cookies, but help yourself to as much of the radishes as you would like. So being a good participant, you obey the, the rules that they, were, that they gave you. And then the next part of the study comes along and the, they bring you uh, puzzles to solve, like brain teaser puzzles uh, and, and logic problems to work on. Except there's a twist that you don't know that the puzzles are actually not solvable. And what they are trying to assess is what difference it made, which group you were in at the beginning, how long it took you before you gave up solving the unsolvable problems. And what they found out was that the people who were told to eat all the cookies that they wanted lasted an average of 19 minutes before giving up on the puzzles. But the people who were told that they couldn't eat the cookies gave up after only an average of eight minutes. And so the conclusion of the study was that self-control and, and patience and delayed gratification is this kind of exhaustible resource. And that if they spent their patience with the cookies, they didn't have enough left to wait as long as, as the patients to give up on the puzzles. And the people who didn't have to spend any of that patience with the cookies, they waited longer before giving up on the puzzles. It's kind of an interesting psychological discovery, not necessarily earth-shattering, because we all know that patience is hard. Waiting is work. The self-control of, of delaying gratification or of waiting for something we want and we desire is not a merely passive activity. It takes energy. It takes effort. It takes active work. And I think that's part of what this passage in James is helping us with. It's helping us to do the work 
of waiting. James is a very practical book, and within James are lots of practical passages and practical instruction easily applicable to our lives, and that's what James is doing. He's helping us do the work of waiting. And so this morning, I want us to see just three aspects of what godly patience is and how we can be more patient as we wait, especially with a mind to as we are patient in our suffering. So number one, the promise of patience is salvation. The promise of patience is salvation. Patience begins with knowing what we are waiting for. The end of our waiting, the end of our enduring through suffering, is the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord signifies the fulfillment and the completion of our salvation. God's eternal purposes, both in the universe and in our individual lives, have begun, but they haven't yet been completed. We live in the in-between. We live in the tension of knowing what Pastor Scott has been preaching to us for several weeks, that the victory is won, but the struggle is not yet over. James is telling us when you're in the midst of suffering, don't be blinded so that you only see what's here and now, but keep your perspective open to the big picture. Keep your perspective eternal. And he turns immediately to an illustration, to an example. The farmer. The farmer waits for the completion of the harvest. He waits for the fulfillment of something that has already begun, but hasn't yet been completed. He plants his crops. The early rains, early in the season, come. And then he waits for the late rains. He has to plant his crops before the early rains, and then he has to wait until after the late rains to reap his harvest. But for this time in between, there is no rain. But the farmer patiently waits. He doesn't panic. He doesn't let the in-between time skew his perspective. He doesn't go around in frantic despair that his crops won't grow. He's done this before, and he knows that the late rains will come and he'll harvest his crops and it will all be completed. And at this point, when we see this example, it's easy to maybe think that the analogy breaks down. After all, waiting a few weeks or waiting a few months for some rain to come is a lot different than waiting decades or waiting centuries or waiting millennia for the return of Christ. But I think that's why we shouldn't understand the meaning of the illustration in terms of how long the farmer waits, but the manner in which he waits and the reason that he waits. He patiently waits because he is certain of what he is waiting for. He has that long-term view. He began with the end in mind. He knows his patience will be rewarded and his task will be completed. So he doesn't panic. He doesn't despair. He doesn't wring his hands and grumble and complain. He patiently waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Brothers and sisters, in every season, maintain an eternal perspective. Jesus is coming soon. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Trust God's faithfulness in the past for his faithfulness in the future. 
Our present suffering is the mark of a broken and sinful world. The tension that you feel when you're enduring suffering is the real result of the fallen world. And it's the reason that Jesus had to die. If you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you have all you need to respond to your suffering with certain hope and with godly patience. As a believer in Christ, you know what he has done for your soul, and you know what he will do for your soul in eternity. So respond to your suffering. Respond to the in-between tension with the memory of what he has already done in the past and the promised certainty of what he will do. I think we don't often look enough to church history for encouragement and examples. Millions of believers over thousands of years have been making disciples and trusting in God's word. One such example is the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a fairly well-known and established piece of of confessional truth and doctrine. And all a catechism is is a series of questions and answers that was designed to make disciples. It was designed for children or new believers to memorize the questions and the answers to learn the doctrine, to learn the tenets of the faith. And it's very telling and very helpful to us to see in the Heidelberg Catechism the very first question, the very first question and the very first answer the foundation for which the writers wanted to lay all of the discipleship and faith of a new believer is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Our salvation is sure. God will finish his work of restoring us from death to life. So in that hope, we can patiently wait. The promise of patience is our salvation itself. Secondly, the practice of patience is contentment. The practice of patience is contentment. In verses 8 and 9, he says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. In this warning against grumbling and against complaining, James is telling us that godly patience manifests itself in contentment. And the foundational truth behind this is that the way you respond outwardly to suffering is a direct indication of the inner inclination of your heart. You will behave outwardly in ways that are an outworking of the inward attitude of your heart. 
And therefore, those behaviors can be used to then diagnose the condition of your heart. And there are really only two possibilities. Belief and satisfaction in God, or disbelief and dissatisfaction in God. You've all heard that you judge a tree by its fruit. If there's a root of trust and satisfaction in God, the outward fruit will be contentment when we're faced with suffering. If the root in your heart is disbelief, dissatisfaction in God, or, or positively satisfaction in things other than God, satisfaction in idols, then the outward fruit when you're faced with suffering will be despair, anger, complaining, grumbling, bitterness. If I may add in, James does a great job of illustrating, but he could have added another illustration in here from Exodus 17. Consider the story in Exodus 17. In chapter 14, the Israelites crossed the Red Sea In chapter 15, Moses sings a great song about God's faithfulness and his deliverance. In chapter 16, God literally sends them food from the sky. They're in the desert, and he delivers them food from the sky miraculously. And then in chapter 17, they find themselves without any water. And what happens? It says, therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And Moses called the place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? God's forgotten about us. Never mind that he just demonstrated his care and faithfulness to us over and over and over again. But as soon as he doesn't do something that we wanted him to do, something that we expected him to do, where is God? He must not care about us anymore. And their disbelief immediately manifests itself in complaining and arguing and fighting with each other, so much so that Moses names the place quarreling. Church, we are those people. We are the people of Israel in Exodus 17. We are not satisfied in God alone. We don't trust him to provide, even when he has done so in the past. We don't trust that his ways are good, even when we don't understand the suffering that we're experiencing. When we complain and despair in the midst of our suffering, we are effectively saying with them in Exodus 17, God is not here with us. God does not care about us. And our outward responses to that suffering reveal the inclination of our heart. When God doesn't do what you wanted him to do, do you trust him or do you question him? Do you rest in knowing that his purposes are good? Or do you question if he's even there? Or worse, do you accuse him of not caring about you? Do you look back and remember all the ways that he's been faithful? Or do you blind yourself? to see only what you want to see, only what you can see right now. Complaining shows that we aren't thankful for what God has done in the past. And then James turns our attention forward. He says that we should be thankful and 
see what God has done in the past, we should look forward to what God will do. He says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. And this is very interesting because just in the previous verse, the imminent coming of the Lord was an assurance. But now he's using the same event as a warning. For those who believe, the return of the Lord is a welcome promise. But for those who don't believe, his return means their righteous judgment. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And he's warning them because he knows responding to suffering with grumbling and complaining is evidence of nothing short of unbelief. And if you don't believe, you might not be saved. And if you're not saved, when the Lord returns, Christ will not be standing in between you and God the Father to absorb his wrath against your sin for you. If you don't believe, you are condemned and the fullness of God's wrath is going to fall on you. And that is a weight that you cannot bear. So you ask, does this mean that the saved person will always express perfect trust and perfect belief and perfect patience? Absolutely not. But in his grace, the Lord is perfectly patient with us, bringing us along, building us up in our faith. Whenever I'm in a season of uncertainty or suffering or hardship, I'm always tempted to despair. I'm always tempted to to complain. I get frustrated because it feels like I am doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. I am being faithful. Why isn't what I want to happen happening? Why is something that I cherished and valued being taken away from me? And it's in those times that I'm often encouraged by a few lines of a hymn that help me work out that disconnect between what I know and what I'm feeling. And it says, I would but cannot rest in God's most holy will. I know what he appoints is best and murmur at it still. But then it doesn't leave me there. It doesn't leave me in that unresolved tension between what I know to be true and what I'm experiencing in my flesh. It helps me voice my prayer. Help my unbelief. My help must come from thee. Of course, our help can only come from him. We're tempted to unbelief. The only way that we can be built up is by the Holy Spirit living in us and sanctifying us, which brings us to our third point. The purpose of patience is holiness. The purpose of patience is holiness. God requires patience from us in order to build us up in our faith and to learn to be satisfied in him alone. And here I'll go back to James's illustrations since he is the biblical author, but he gives us two. He gives us two, the prophets and Job. And I want to begin with Job and then work our way back to the prophets. Most of us are probably familiar with the life of Job. Job is a biblical example of of purely innocent suffering. Nothing that Job did 
nothing that happened to Job was the result of his sin, was the consequence of his sin. Rather, it was sent from God. His whole family is killed. All of his livestock is killed. All of his earthly possessions taken. He's totally beaten down. And he actually starts out well. He begins in faith. In chapter 1, Job chapter 1, 21 and 22, he says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. We all know the verse, Blessed be the name of the Lord. But then not, it doesn't take too long, he, he starts to drift into this despair and unbelief. In chapter 3, it says, Job cursed the day of his birth. Let the day perish on which I was born. In Job chapter 7, he succumbs to complaining. He says, I will speak the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. I loathe my life. And then further on in chapter 23 and 29, he questions God's presence and purpose. Just, just it's, so, it's so striking, the parallels that we've already seen. He questions God's presence. Where is God? Oh, that I might argue my case before him, but he would not pay attention to me. Oh, that I, was, I were as the months of old when the Almighty was yet with me. Oh, that it was like it used to be when God was faithful to me and now he's no longer faithful. Oh, that it were as it, as it was when God would listen to me, but now he won't listen. And if you're familiar with the book, how does God respond to all of this? Who is this that darkens counsel by my words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man and I will question you and, I will make, and you, you make it known to me. Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, who shut in the sea with doors? Have you commanded the morning since your days began? Have you entered the springs of the sea? Where is the way to the dwelling of light and the place of darkness? Have you entered the storehouses of snow? Who has left a channel for the torrents of rain? Has the rain a father? Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Can you guide the bear with its children? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you hunt for prey? Uh, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? Do you know when the mountain ge- goats ge- give birth? Do you observe the calving? Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains at his pasture. He searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him with the furrow of ropes? Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? And spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command 
that the eagle mounts up. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Answer me, Job. Where were you? How dare you pretend to know what I know? Chapter 42. Job answered the Lord. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. How dare we question God's purposes? How dare we question his goodness? Our complaints are the, are the fruit of our unbelief. And our unbelief is an affront to the very nature of God, to his purpose, and to his mercy. So you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Just before that, he says, take the prophets. Take the prophets. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. To consider the prophets, we, as believers who, by God's mercy, have the completed Word of God, the completed canon of Scripture, we can look no further than Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would not have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In all of these lives, in Job, in all of the prophets, in even more lives than, than were named in Hebrews 11 or that we have time to name this morning, God's purpose was to use endurance through suffering as a means of refining and sanctifying his children. He brought them through their suffering so they would come out of it 
with no other allegiance but God himself and no other aim but to live forever in his presence. He used their difficulty to show them that he is enough. He used their experiences to demonstrate that their suffering, no matter how intense or how severe, is but a light momentary affliction that is preparing for them an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And believer, you should know this morning that he is using your suffering to show you that he is enough. He is using your light and momentary affliction to discipline you and to teach you to long for that eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We look to things that are not seen. Godly patience is refusing to give in to the present appearance of things as though it were the ultimate reality. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The way you respond to suffering will either proclaim the gospel or deny the gospel. You can respond with the assurance of what God has done and what he will do, resting in contentment because you trust that his ways are good, or you can respond with grumbling and complaining and bitterness, which are nothing more than the outward fruit of the inward sin of unbelief and distrust. The very first question, what is your only comfort in life and in death that you are not your own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? He has fully paid for all your sins with his precious blood and has set you free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over you in such a way that not a hair can fall from your head without the will of your Father in heaven. Do you believe in his absolute sovereignty over your life? Not one hair can fall from your head without the will of your Father in heaven. Not one job can be lost without the will of your Father in heaven. Not one heart can be broken without the will of your Father in heaven. Not one cancer cell can form in your body without the will of your Father in heaven. Not one father, not one mother can die without the will of your Father in heaven. Not one embryo can fail to implant without the will of your Father in heaven. Your patience in suffering will proclaim the reality of eternal life. Your patience in suffering will proclaim that true satisfaction is found only in Christ. Your patience in suffering will proclaim the glory of a holy God who does not leave us in our sins, but saves us and changes us and transforms us into the likeness of Christ. Our suffering is God's mercy to build us up in our faith, to refine us. Do you have the assurance of eternal life? Do you know the satisfaction that's found in Christ? Are you satisfied in him alone? Are you dead in your sins, or are you being made holy by the Spirit? In just a moment, as we respond together through singing, 
consider how God is calling you to respond individually to his word. If you don't know the assurance of eternal life through faith in Christ, then he is calling you this morning to confess your sin, repent, and believe and be saved. If you are a believer in Christ and you're struggling with unbelief, our compassionate and merciful Father is calling you to rest in his goodness and to put your hope in what is unseen. How will you respond? Let's pray. Father, you are compassionate and merciful. Forgive us for when we forget that. Forgive us for when we are caught up in the things that are happening to us and we lose sight of your eternal purpose. We lose sight of our eternal ends. Lord, we confess that our ways are not your ways. We confess that our thoughts are not your thoughts. We have no idea what you could be doing, what you are doing in any moment. So, Father, we humbly ask that you teach us. We rest in your assurance. We thank you for your patience with us. And, Lord, we pray that you give us patience. We pray that you give us assurance. We pray that you give us the calmness that only the certainty of our salvation can bring. That in our suffering, we would proclaim the gospel because people see the certainty with which we are responding to that suffering. We pray that you would help us proclaim the gospel when we respond to our suffering because people see the trust that we have in a compassionate and merciful Father. I pray for every soul in this room that you would help our unbelief. Many of us have trusted in Christ. His righteousness is resting on us. You look at us and you see your son standing in our place. But Father, there are some who have not. Father, break open their hearts with your spirit. Break through their unbelief, conquer their pride, convict them of their sin. These things we ask in the name of our Savior. Amen.